If you would stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading will be coming from Isaiah 6, um, verses 1 through 8. You can follow along on the screen behind me as well. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then, the one, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And whom will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this oh and say to this people. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. For over a, a year, I've had, uh, I guess what can only be described as a, a burden, uh, a growing burden, a growing weight on, that began in, in my soul that, that felt like we have got to be the church that God has called us to be that we have to be the church for which he died and a feeling that a sense in my soul that for all the things that God has done for us over the past number of years and uh, all the ways that he has moved and has shown up that, that we weren't there. That we weren't really actively being the church for which Jesus had died. I had this have had this growing burden on my soul that, that we must be an awakened people, that we might be sent by God on his mission with his power and not our power. And really that burden is a long lasting one for me. It's not one that just began over a year ago. It's really one that's been in my soul for a long time. It's actually what stirred in in my heart to really want to be a part of a church plant to begin with. But if I'm honest with you guys, and this is just me just being honest, I think sometime over the past number of years, though I really wanted to serve the Lord and follow after him, I think I, my attention got off at times. I think my attention got off from, from, uh, from simply being awakened and being sent by God to try to be a successful pastor or a successful preacher, build a successful church, keep people happy, keep people content, instead of really saying, is the, is the Lord happy? Really wanting to be seen as a successful preacher and a successful pastor, really, rather than simply being an obedient one. And I think that for far too long, 
I accepted, accepted something less than what God intended for me as a believer. And I think that honestly, for far too long, we have accepted something less. And that's really why we're in the middle of doing this series, being an awakened and sent people. It's not just a series that we're going to hit on for a few weeks. It's actually what we want to be the heartbeat and the core of who we are as a people and as a church. And I view, quite frankly, as, uh, as I've looked back at my job description over the past number of months, I've really looked back at my job description and I view like really my one main job that I have as your lead teaching elder is to transfer or to share this burden that has been upon my soul to you. And some of you already share it. But to transfer it, see that by God's grace that he would transfer it to all of us so that it would be the heartbeat of who we are as a people that we want a burden, first of all, to be an awakened people who are then sent by God to awaken others. And here's what I know, I, and here's what I believe, that if we respond to that call, to that burden of that God would place upon our souls to be an awakened people sent by God to awaken others, then I believe and I know that we would see a move of God happen in our midst that none of us have seen in our lifetime. And here's what it would look a little bit like. Before our passage in Isaiah 6, and I shared this with you last week, Isaiah gave this prophecy in Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5. It was a picture of what God had for the people of God, the people of Israel, but really he was prophesying in advance to what the, the church would be on earth. It shall come to pass, verse 2 of Isaiah chapter 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord is the temple of God or the church, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's the, the church, shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a beacon of wisdom and a beacon of peace for the whole world to see. Jesus described it is the same picture that he was describing when he said, you are a city on a hill or you are a light on a lampstand. The point in the picture is that we individually and particularly we collectively as the church should be so, so shining forth the nature and the character of God, should so be shining forth what it means to be a redeemed people living under the peaceful rule and reign of Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, that we should be, our lives should be so exhibiting what that looks like that the nations around us see that and they flow up the mountain to the Lord. They come to us and say, 
teach us the ways. Because they hear the word of the Lord coming forth from the people of God. And this is what exactly was set in motion at Pentecost. When we see Acts chapter 2, this is a long section, Acts 2, verses 1 through 14. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Many of you know this section. And suddenly they came from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in the other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now listen to this after hearing this passage in Isaiah 2. Now hear what happened. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. Hear what it says. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God and all were amazed and perplexed saying another one to, one to another what does this mean but others mocking said they are filled with new wine but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem let this be known to you and give ear to my words and then he preach this sermon. And then down in verse 37, he says, at the, towards the end of his sermon, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together, hear this, and had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need and day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. That's what it means to be a part of the of Zion that is on the mountain of God that all the nations flow to it and look and see what it means to live under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. As they hear the wonders of God proclaimed to them and they see exhibit among the people an incredibly different type of lifestyle that is based upon not our, our sinful humanity, but upon the sinless perfection of Jesus Christ and the new heart and new minds that he gives us by his work on the cross and the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit and the minds and hearts of his believers. That's what it means. But the question is, is this what we are seeing today in not just in the church, but in our church. Is this what we are seeing? And if not, then we have to ask, why not? And Isaiah helps us to answer that question. 
because this was always the promise of God to Israel. But as God spoke to Isaiah, the people of Israel were prosperous and also religious. And they had fallen into spiritual apathy and lethargy like we might find ourselves in. In Isaiah 1, we shared this passage last week, but it helps us explain what's coming in Isaiah 6. God said to the people of Israel, when you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Do, do you hear that? When they were coming to the temple to worship God as he had told them to come, doing the things that he had told them to do, Yet because their hearts were far from him, he considered their coming into the temple as the trampling of his courts. He said, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity or sin and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. There's a time where what we call our worship of God becomes a burden to God. Whenever we put an exterior actions in place, but our hearts are far from it. God says, I have no pleasure in that. Not only does he says, I have no pleasure in that, I consider it a trampling of my courts when you come into my temple to worship that way. And it has become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Listen to what he says. He says, cease to do evil. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Part of the reason that the, that the Israelites were, their worship was an abomination in God's sight. It was a, a burden to his souls because they were not seeking justice or correcting oppression or bringing justice to the fatherless or pleading the widow's cause. They had a form of religion, but they were denying the power. And Isaiah was right there with them until he saw something that awakened him from his slumber. And we're looking at Isaiah 6, 1 through 8 to see how that kind of awakening occurs. Awakening occurs when we hear God's call. Isaiah 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. And so there's a scene of incredible majesty and holiness that Isaiah saw. Above him stood the seraphim. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then it says the foundations, verse four, of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. 
What it's saying is that Isaiah's entry into where the place where God was was barred from his entry and the smoke shielded him from seeing God anymore because of his sinfulness. And Isaiah said, woe is me, or may I die. It's really the picture that he's saying there. Woe is me for I am lost or I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. God showed Isaiah this picture, he, this vision of his glory and his majesty and the effect that it had on Isaiah was Isaiah was fearful and afraid and he said, I am undone, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. I, for my eyes have seen the king, I, I am undone, I am, I am broken. I'm come to an end of myself. But the good news is that God showed Isaiah his holiness and his sin in order for his own good. God showing Isaiah his glory and Isaiah's sin was God's call to Isaiah. It was his gracious offer of something better. And that is what God is always showing us. It's what God is always showing you. He is always showing you his glory and your sin. Your glory and your sinfulness. The fact that you are a man or a woman of unclean lips and you dwell among a people of unclean lips. He is always showing us that. And his showing us that is his call to us of something greater and something more. But the question, first of all, is do we even hear it? It's like a, when you've been married for a while and your spouse is in front of you, but you just don't see him anymore? Or your spouse is trying to tell you something and you just don't hear it? Uh, my wife and I have been married for a while, probably about six, seven years, about seven years or so. And, and for, a, for a while, she had been trying to tell me that something was not healthy in our marriage. Something was not healthy about the way I was relating to her, the way I was speaking to her, the way I was treating her. She had this feeling inside her soul that all of my interactions with her were telling her, I, I, I wish you were different. I'm trying to make you into a different person. And I would have said, no, that's not true. But actually the truth inside my soul was actually was true. I wanted to remake Megan to be in my image or to be what I wanted her to be. And I was always trying to get her into that, but I wouldn't even be honest with myself or with her about that. It was kind of unconsciously going on underneath the surface. And she'd been trying to tell me, we had a pretty good marriage though, outside of that, outside of me trying to change her, we had a pretty good marriage. And she spent years trying to tell me how she felt that my interactions, how they was making her feel and what it was doing to our relationship. And I just couldn't hear it. And so finally one day it got my, like she said it in such a way and God got my attention until I finally saw what she'd been saying the whole time. And that's how God is communicating with us. He is constantly showing us his glory and his holiness in our state apart from him. And the question is, will we even see it? Will we even hear it to even be able to respond? To be super honest, I think this is a big reason that we haven't actually grown more as a church. 
Because I, I think the great enemy for us as Americans, the great enemy of us really seeing God and his holiness and us and our sinfulness and responding in the way he's inviting us to respond is our own sense of satisfaction. We are far too easily satisfied. We are far too easily satisfied with our lives because most of us in this room and that are watching online, we live incredibly. And the picture that I have of the American church is a lot like Jabba the Hutt, big and fat and kind of slimy and not able to do very much, but yet a sleeping giant who if we would just be awakened, would see things that we have never seen in our lifetimes. Notice what I'm not talking about is simply action. The American church and our church has a lot of action. I am not talking about more action and doing things. The people that Isaiah was addressing had a lot of action. That's what God was describing in the first chapter. They had a lot of things that they were doing. And it's in situations, though, like this, that God steps in in order to shake us, like he did with Isaiah. Just look at 2020. All right, I know we all joke about 2020, but this is a very, very even incomplete list of what we have seen in 2020. Catastrophic Australian wildfires, a president impeached, unprecedented political polarization and strife, near war with Iran, a pandemic, the death of George Floyd, racial tensions, protests and riots, economic struggles, layoffs, closures, hurricanes, rampant wildfires in the West, closing of public worship of churches, and the inability for churches to return in the way they were before. Plus any number of other things that you guys can name, right? Not to mention our complete inability as Christians to be the mountain of God that the nations flow to. How could 2020 be anything other than the Lord shaking us awake from our lethargy? I don't think 2020 is a joke. Ah, 2020. And I've I've done, I've said those jokes, right? I think we'd be missing the point if we don't see God trying to shake us as the church and shake us as believers and to shake us awake. But we tend to dampen and lower God's call to us. But here's the thing about our Lord is he is not accepting of halfway devotion. He will have all of our hearts. That is his determination as Lord. He is the almighty and the majestic and the holy one. You don't make him that when you bow down before him. You simply acknowledge that to be true. 
In pre-service prayer this morning, John Glendening prayed, God, help us, we want to ascribe glory to you. And it stood out to me because he's saying, we're not making you glorious. We're just acknowledging that that is who you are and that is what you are and is what you deserve. When that vision of that God who is almighty and majestic and holy, when that breaks through to our souls, when it breaks through to our heart, when his call to us breaks through our lethargy and apathy and our self-satisfaction, when we experience his holiness and his majesty, all of a sudden we wonder why we were ever distracted by anything less. We wonder how can we be distracted by any lesser glory and we know that it requires a proper response from us. That's what we see from Isaiah. When he sees the Lord high and lifted up, he says in verse five, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Woe is me. That's his answer to God's call. Woe is me. He doesn't make any great promises. He doesn't make any changes. He doesn't tell God, I'm going to do all my quiet times from here on. I'm going to be the temple every weekend. He, he just says, woe is me. For I am a man of unclean lips who has seen the king. All of a sudden, when you see the king, I don't just mean like, like understand that the Lord is king, understand that Jesus is king and repeat that Jesus is king. I mean, whenever you understand, like the difference between, as Jonathan Edwards described, the difference between me telling you that honey is sweet and you tasting it on your tongue. When you all of a sudden don't just know that God is Lord or say it with your mouth, but you sense it in your soul, the weight of his holiness and his glory. When you feel that deep inside your soul, all of a sudden you no longer excuse, ignore, or manage your sin. You simply just own it and you cry out for help. Woe is me. Isaiah didn't all of a sudden say, oh man, I'm sinful. God, I promise when I leave here, I'm never gonna watch that again. I'm never gonna go see her again. I'm never gonna do that again. I'm gonna stop doing that. He just says, woe to me. Woe is me. I'm no longer excusing, ignoring, or managing my sin. I am undone. I am lost. He simply owns his sin. Woe is me. I deserve whatever I have come unto me. And unless God does something, I have no hope or no help. A lifestyle of repentance isn't fueled by a hatred of our sin and lethargy. It's fueled by an appetite for God. That's what powers our turning away from sin. Think about how Isaiah responds. Think about how Peter responded. He's in the boat with Jesus and they, he doubts God and they catch all these fish and all of a sudden he doesn't, he doesn't celebrate that they caught a big load of fish and they're going to make a lot of money that day. He simply falls down on his knees. And he says, my Lord and my God. 
Paul said, before I was a Christian, I had all these things going for me, but now I count it all as dung for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And this is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Repenting or repentance is not just something that we do when we become a Christian. It's not something that we do at times when we mess up as a Christian. Repentance is a pervasive way of seeing God and seeing ourselves. It is an utter humility before God as a believer. And the Heidelberg Catechism describes repentance in this way. The question goes, what is involved in genuine repentance or conversion? And the answer is two things. The dying away of the old self and the rising to life of the new. What is this dying away of the old self? The answer is to be genuinely sorry for sin and more and more to hate and run away from it. What is the rising to new life of the new self? That's a question. Answer, wholehearted joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God by doing every kind of good work. What, what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for God's glory and not based upon our own opinion or human tradition. Martin Luther said this, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. That was his first thesis. Ray Orland says this, repentance is a mentality of brokenness before God's law and desire for favor and determination to be faithful to God's word. Repentance isn't about making promises and doing better. Repentance is a falling down before God first. That's what we see in Isaiah. So we see in, in every, the life of every believer in history, actually. Repentance is a falling down before God on our knees in repentance. Every time someone in Scripture sees God in any measure of his glory, they always fall down and they always say, woe is me, or let me die, or I know I'm going to die now, because that is the response of us when we see the glory of God and we sense our own sinfulness. But it's not, repentance isn't just falling down before God. Repentance is a falling down upon God. It's this sense in our souls where we see, as Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up, and he says, woe is me, I am undone. And yet, in the midst of that, he says, I get whatever is going to come to me. And yet, inside his soul is crying out, but yet maybe God and his nature and his character will redeem me. Because that is God's nature and his character in itself. The Lord, the Lord. Gracious and merciful. A response of repentance to God is a response really of servanthood. It's an acceptance of our rightful place before God. And it's this song that rises in our soul that says it's better to be a servant in the household of God than be anywhere else. We see that in Isaiah. 
He says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. He didn't know what the mission was. He didn't know what God was gonna ask him to do. He didn't have any assurance of success in that mission. He had no details at all. All he knew was that the Holy One of Israel said, I need somebody to go for me. And he said, I must be the one who responds. Here I am, send me. I don't care what it is. I don't care what it entails. I don't care if it's gonna be successful. I don't care if people are gonna laugh. I don't care if I have any assurance of anything other than this, will you please go with me? If I can be with you, it doesn't matter what I have to do or where I have to go, or what people will say. Joel 2, 12 and 14. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Again, that's the picture there of of not just simply saying, oh, I'm gonna read more, I'm gonna go to church more, I'm gonna be nicer, I'm gonna stop doing those things. But focusing instead on their heart. We return to God when we rend our hearts and not our garments. Return to the Lord, your God, for. Why do we return to the Lord? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows? It should be our prayer for 2020. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And here's the encouraging thing, believer. We know that God will relent. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent? We know that God will relent because that is his nature. It is his character. Our God, our God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He is gracious and he is merciful. Therefore, we know we can and must return to him, rend our hearts, cry out, woe is me, fall down before God and upon God and say, God, you are holy, I am sinful, I need you to come and do something within me. Look at how God moves when Isaiah responds in repentance. He sins. Isaiah just says, I am undone. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And God in his own, own nature, his own character, his own motivation, he sends the seraph to him. He doesn't tell Isaiah, go and get the coal off the altar and put it on your lips. He sends the seraph with the coal in the tongs. He touches it to Isaiah's lips. Think about that. The, think about the incredible pain that's implied there with touching a burning coal to your lips. 
But Isaiah is so desperate for the glory of God. He's so desperate to bow down his knees to God and to respond to God in the way that God deserves and the way that will honor God that he doesn't care. And the seraph says, your guilt has been taken away and your sins have been atoned for. Isn't that amazing? That for all of this sinfulness that caused in the presence of the Holy One, the thresholds and the foundations to shake and the temple to fill with smoke, all of a sudden his guilt is taken away and his sins are atoned for. You know what that coal is? That coal is Jesus. And the seraph is the Holy Spirit that brings him to us. Through the work of Christ, we are accepted before God. Through the work of Christ, our sins are cleansed and our guilt, our own feeling of guilt is taken away. In Christ, we are then made free from the pervasive power of sin. If you are a believer in Christ, sin has no longer has power over you. By Christ's work, you're not alone. You're indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And by Christ's work, we have authority over the work of the evil one. There's this um, interaction that happens in C.S. Lewis's uh, Narnia book called The Silver Chair. And, and this girl, Jill, she runs across uh, in, this, in this place on this mountain, uh, Aslan, who is the picture of Christ. And she's incredibly thirsty, but Aslan, she discovers this lion is lying in front of the stream between her and this stream that's flowing with fresh water. And she notices the lion there, and I'm going to read this quote to you. And the lion said, are you not thirsty? She said, I am dying of thirst. Then drink, said the lion. May, may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you, will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I, I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. 
How long will we be satisfied with searching for other streams while dying of thirst ourselves? Uh, For my part, here's what I've decided. I've decided no more cuteness. I've decided no more American dream. I've decided no more comfortable Christianity. I decided no more working under my own strength and I've decided no more managing my sin nicely. I simply want to be with him. I want to know him and I want to follow wherever he goes and I want to do whatever he says. put an invitation to you, will you join me? Will you join us? Will we join together and respond together, together to the one, the only, majestic, holy, merciful, and gracious God? If you're here today, and you've never responded to that call. Today is the day. Do not seek one more day seeking other streams. And if you're a believer in Christ today, today is the day to draw a line and say no more cuteness, no more American dream, no more comfortable Christianity, no more working under my own strength, no more managing my sin nicely, simply the holy, holy, holy Lord of hosts who fills the whole earth with his glory, I cry out to you and I say, woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I pray you cleanse me and I pray that you'll send me for your glory, for our joy. Father, that is, I pray, the prayer of our hearts and souls this morning. Father, would you make us individually, would you make us into, as a church, as a people, into a people who rend our hearts and not our garments, who the best as we can is by your grace, we reject apathy and lethargy, God, let the cry of our souls become, woe is me, then thankful am I, and then send me. For your glory and for our joy, we pray.